0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. The international media uses strong words to describe China's system of governance. American newspapers such as the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post often inform their readers that China's regime is authoritarian or totalitarian or both. Of course, Chinese state media uses quite different terms. Supporters of the Communist Party say that China has developed a political system which perfectly suits its culture, and socialism with Chinese characteristics is a form of democracy superior to that of the decadent West, which suits the interests of most people. The language that we use to talk about China is therefore important, and words can reveal an ideological divide. So what's the best terminology to properly describe contemporary China? To help me answer that question, I'm pleased to welcome back an articulate guest to the podcast, Frank Tsai. He's lived in Shanghai for more than 15 years and runs an organization which hosts public lectures called China Crossroads. Frank, I'm very pleased that you've agreed to come back and talk to us once again on China in Context. Well, thank you for hosting me once again. Frank, can I start with those two words, which I quoted from the American newspapers at the start words which are applied to China a lot authoritarian and totalitarian what's your interpretation of those words. Well, I want to start by saying that China is trivially
1: an autocracy um, as defined by scholars and political scientists simply as a non democracy, a democracy. That term is also a complicated one, which we don't have to get into. But you know, let's just say that uh, it's an autocracy is not a Western Western liberal democracy as we know it. So China is one of those. Um, but what kind of autocracy is it? Uh, to paraphrase Tolstoy, you know, all democracies are happy in the same way, but autocracies are not similarly unhappy. They're very different. Um, There are many academic frameworks for totalitarianism as there are for democracy, but let's just more intuitively say that in a totalitarian system, the majority of people fear the state, think the Stasi, think the Gulag, think of Stalin and Mao and the purges of millions and tens of millions of people. Uh, Let's think also of how the party state controls your life. Most aspects of your life are controlled by the government. Now, both are untrue of China today, as anyone who's ever spent any time here knows. Most people here are left untouched by the governing apparatus, and the party has wide legitimacy. Uh, It's the government is not feared here by the vast majority of people.
0: So you mentioned there Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, who was the chairman of the Communist Party from 1949 until his death in 1976. China was surely authoritarian at that time. And I'm inclined to think by your own definition, it was also totalitarian because people feared the state. Do you think that's changed then?
1: Yes. um, As I said, I don't think the vast majority of Chinese fear the state now. And I think a better term for describing China today is as a one party Leninist state. Um, Ultimately, this term focuses on the inheritance of Lenin who created the institutions and the idea of a vanguard party that China then copied. It also very crucially turns our attention to the organizational capacity of the party, which has 100 million members who penetrate society. What is the party meant to do? It's meant to get things done for the people, and that's why it has this huge capacity. These could be good things or bad things, but it has that capacity. It also jealously guards that capacity because it doesn't want others to have the organizational power to interfere in what it considers uh, national aims for China. Uh, You know, we can sympathize with the party too. I mean, when China was founded uh, up until, you could even say today, it's been in a state of emergency in many ways. When you're in a state of emergency, you tend to want to channel all the energy of society to a certain goal. Uh, this term, one party led in a state also has certain virtues in our debate in the West about China's system. it points to the continuity since 1949 of this regime that Xi Jinping has emphasized and is correct about and that many Western China hawks emphasize and are also correct about. At the same time, it doesn't necessarily imply that China is a police state or totalitarian. And you know, to my mind, if, if China is your enemy, you really should know the nature of the enemy you want to defeat. Um, and what this term, uh, one party Leninist state highlights is that this party has a monopoly on organized power in society. That's the thing that's special about China. That, that the hawks ought to be focusing on. Finally, I think this framework helps understand some of China's foreign policy. You know, a lot of people ask why does China side with Russia against Ukraine despite its economic interests? Um, and you know, party ideology uh, has emphasized for a very long time uh, that. Western-inspired popular movements, color revolutions, like the kind that led Putin to invade Ukraine, are not good for China. They subvert China. They go against our monopoly of organized power. So when you look at this way of thinking of the party and how the party understands itself, I think you can make some more sense of China's uh, actions on the world stage.
0: I sometimes hear it said that people are becoming more committed to a Marxist ideology in China because of the decadence of the West. So I expect you're familiar with this way of thinking. Western capitalism has failed. Uh, there's pervasive racism, particularly in the United States. The rich exploit the poor. Neoliberalism always places profit before social responsibility.
1: I think it makes a lot of sense uh, from China's perspective. I think we have to appreciate the degree to which China feels embattled in the world. There is some trending toward uh, more Marxist ideology in China, but I think that we have to heavily qualify that. I mean, this is socialism with Chinese characteristics, which we don't have time to go into, but it's not and in, in, in any way the Western, the pure Western Marxism we know. Um, at the same time, we also know that Xi Jinping has incorporated some socialist and Marxist ideals into this idea of common prosperity. That's all true. Um, but I would also say that you know, in China, the ideology, the Marxism, uh, the way the parties won it's all a species of nationalism, insofar as this ideology represents China's own path in the face of opposition from the rest of the world. The young are more likely to be nationalists and believe in China's system because they did it succeed and have less experience of China's troubles. And interestingly enough, people from about 40 to 60 are less likely to be nationalists in general because they benefited from the openness of the earlier period of China's openness to the world, from about, say, nineteen ninety five two thousand and fifteen. Um, I think, as a general proposition, you know, whether countries or people, if you are shunned but then succeed, as China was and has, uh, you'll of course double down on your way of doing things. Uh, you know, you 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 can say, "I told you so," and uh, you know, whether it's the economic miracle or China's. Uh, Covid control, Chinese are convinced by this kind of argument. As for the decadence of the West, um, I would put that in terms that the party sees it, which is as failure of collective action. So that's most spectacularly true of the United States in controlling uh, COVID-19. Um, and one thing I have learned from living here and from the Communist Party of China is that collective action is actually very important. We are all weak as individuals. If we want to get something done and have some meaningful impact in society, you have to do things with other people in collective action. The party excels at getting people on the same page to do these kinds of things. At the same time, it says the West is weak and can't accomplish this. I would partly differ with that. I mean, the West has been able to sacrifice for the nation in, in two world wars. Uh, you know, uh, whether or not you know Amer- uh, Western politics are fractured now uh, you know it's been the case that the west has been able to come together for common aims in the past and i would even point to western multinational companies which are far more effectively run and in many ways more collectivist than than chinese enterprises for example so uh, i think we can learn something from the way the communist party talks about society and i can also i also think we can learn something from our own past whether uh, our forefathers in the us or the uk and how they uh, brought about
0: uh, common understanding and successful collective action. You're in Shanghai, and I know that you've been listening to my podcast online there, probably using Apple or Spotify, and we've communicated by email, LinkedIn to set up today's conversation. But to a large extent, China has decoupled from the world's most popular social media platforms, so it blocks Facebook, Google, Twitter, and so on. Is this technological split leading to a wider ideological divide with the West? Well,
1: I, I don't think I'm a tech expert. There are people who can speak uh, you know, much more persuasively about this, but I will say one thing. Twitter and Facebook wouldn't be blocked in China if China did not fear a subversion by the West, uh, which just goes back to my previous point about the embattlement that the party feels and, and the relative strength of the West. Um, now I use neither because I've been in China so long that uh, You know, I I didn't even catch the Twitter and Facebook waves long ago, and I haven't, you know, wanted to use them because Chinese don't use them, and they've always been blocked. I do use LinkedIn, though, because it was only blocked recently in the last six months, and many Chinese in my community here in Shanghai use it. Um, LinkedIn's the only social network that uh, connects the West and China, and still does uh, in a meaningful way, even though you have to use VPN these days. And really, really interesting about this is that if you're Chinese and you have to use VPN, the party, the government has set it so that you are cut off from the rest of the world, You're just in a private, job-focused uh, China LinkedIn. But all you have to do is tweak the privacy settings, uh, and the government set your privacy settings with the most private. Just tweak that, and you're back in the international network, which is also an interesting way that the government runs things here, because it's given a pretty easy way out for Chinese people to go back on the
0: international LinkedIn. You've been relatively outspoken during our conversation. Do people monitor what you say? Will you be reproached for talking to me? One
1: more thing I want to say about China being a one-party land state. Sorry to go back a bit, but a very important thing. Um, I had said that totalitarian states make people fear them, and uh, there are groups of uh, people in China who fear the state certainly. Now, when we look at organizational capacity, this framework, we can then start naming some of those groups of people, okay? If you uh, are running or are affiliated with any organization in China that has a degree of power, like thousands, millions of followers, which which don't exist in China, then you are countering the monopoly on organized power that the communist party has. So those people should fear uh, monitoring and, you know, uh, other uh, worse outcomes. Um, Same for foreign organizations. I mean, if you're affiliated with a foreign government, a foreign institution, uh, foreign NGOs, of course, then you also uh, could fear uh, deportation, losing your work visa, this kind of thing. And we can't go into, there are many other categories. I mean, I would even think that big capitalists, they have power too. And someone like Jack Ma can't talk in public now. Uh, You know, anybody who has a degree of power or is affiliated with some organization with some degree of power uh, should uh, fear monitoring uh, by the state. And this is not even getting to large groups like ethnic groups, which I think are a different issue. Um, so talking more about me and my own concerns, um, I do have organizational capacity, but I'm not that big, right? So I, I run about 70 public lectures a year. In Shanghai, 3,500 people come. So it's not really that big. And you know, you asked me if I'm careful. I'm more careful in about the political content uh, in my own events because that's creating social capital. People meet each other and uh, they create horizontal ties in society that lead, that could lead to organization and competing, powers, uh, competing centers of power uh, as opposed to the vertical ties that the party wants to maintain with the citizens. So um, I'm careful not to host anything that would criticize the, the Communist Party of China in my in-person talks. And I've been doing this for 12 years and I think I know what I'm doing. But the key point is that you know that's what I fear. Uh, media, I don't fear so much because I mean, it, you know, Chinese can't access it if it's on VPN, and you know, uh, the government cares about Chinese opinion, not foreign opinion. Ultimately, in this framework, right of opposing other centers of organized power, um, I did go on CNN with Christian, um, Christian Amanpour and was a bit concerned about that because certainly the. Uh, The government doesn't like CNN, so I had to be careful there, I think. But other media appearances, I I am not too worried about that. I'm not worried about LinkedIn because it's blocked, of course. That doesn't have any effect on Chinese public opinion. Um, I think the key point here is that what I'm doing uh, is I'm a tiny interface uh, of civil society uh, here in China. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of scholars will point to certain aspects of this regime. And I'll point to certain aspects because I live them here. I mean, uh, this issue of organizational capacity is one I deal with every day. So I have a lot of skin in this game. And I think that's why I see the Leninist aspect of the state as being really what's important and what the party cares about.
0: Well, thank you, Frank, for your carefully worded responses to my questions. It's been a most informative conversation. That was Frank Tsai on the line from Shanghai. He's the founder of China Crossroads, which organizes public lectures and he's on the teaching team at Emlyon Business School and Jiang Jiao Tong, Liverpool University's Department of International Studies. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.